Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Oliver Kay, senior football writer for The Athletic and the author of Forever Young, the story of Adrian Doherty, football's lost genius. Ollie, I wonder if you could start by giving us a primer, like a, a pricey of, of, of Adrian's life, just as we get started. Of course, we'll go into it in more depth uh, throughout the course of this, of this chat. But for now, it'd be great, I think, and helpful for people who don't know about Adrian to, to get a quick pricey of, of his mm-hmm. life. Adrian was born in Straban um, in County Tyrone in 1973. Um, he joined Manchester United uh, in 1989 as a 16-year-old and in the words of Ryan Giggs, as one of the most exciting, talented um, kids of his age group in Britain. He might even have said Europe, I can't remember. But there's no doubt from speaking to everybody I've spoken to for the book that Adrian was an extreme talent. He was a, he was a right-winger, pace, trickery, um, courage, aggression, two feet. Um, everybody absolutely raves about his, his football talent. Uh, Ryan Giggs said he was... Incredible, Gary Neville said he was out of this world. So, in terms of his football talent, it's it's all those kind of adjectives that that, that he was um, an extreme talent at the mm. age of sixteen. He was on the verge of making his Manchester United debut in his first year as an as a as an apprentice. He travelled with the team to a game at Southampton and was was due to be on the bench, but Danny Wallace passed the fitness test at the last minute. Um, so he was he was extremely talented. Ryan Giggs was um, six months younger than him and in the year below, 
but people said, well, you didn't talk about Ryan Wilson as it was then. Yeah. Um, you talked about Doherty and Wilson being the, the two extreme talents at Manchester United at the time. And Gary Neville said that he remembers going along to a, a, a youth cup game against Sheffield Wednesday in probably early 1990, uh, which was actually at Old Trafford. And he'd, he'd, he'd seen Ryan Wilson now Ryan Giggs before and he'd seen various other lads and he's just said he was absolutely blown away by the sheer talent of of Adrian and he just ended up thinking well you know I, I've just signed schoolboy terms with Manchester United as a 14 year old but if that's the level mm. what I'm seeing from Ryan and from Adrian Doherty if that's the level then none of the rest of us have got a chance. It's interesting you said it because I interviewed Mickey Gray for one of these episodes and he said to me almost exactly the same words as you just said there. He said, when I first saw Adrian and Ryan, I thought, if this is the level, I'm not going to be good enough. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he he didn't actually play for Man United in the end, Mm. but he obviously had a great career. But so that gives you a a perspective of how head and shoulders above the Mm. the rest they were. So it is fair to really, in that context, compare Adrian with Ryan Giggs at that stage. I think everybody at the time was comparing them. Yeah. And I think I think it it, it, um, it seemed the more I sort of stumbled across the story and 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 ended up um, you know digging very deep and speaking to loads of people and it, it was like they were kind of I mean they were both incredibly young to be even training with the first team at that time they were you know just coming up to seventeen and then just past the seventeenth birthdays when they, when they were training with with the first team on a daily basis mm. and. It seemed like at one stage one of them would be ahead and, and would be playing lots of games through reserves and, and travelling with the first team. And then, you know, because you get, you know, with young players, they, they would get peaks and troughs and and um, in and out of form. And, and at other times, um, the other one would, would, would be ahead. The, the reason this book came about, or the reason I stumbled across the story at least, was because I was doing, um, I was going to be doing an article in, early 2011 about mm. Ryan Giggs's it was coming up to the 20th anniversary of his debut at Manchester United and I thought well rather than do the kind of typical oh what a great player Ryan Giggs has been for the last 20 years I thought I would sort of go back to 1991 and speak to a load of people who were with him in the youth team which everybody thinks well oh yeah the youth team that was it that was him and Gary Neville David Beckham Paul Scholes etc but it wasn't because mm. they're a he, bit younger they, right? they, they, they were they were the school year below him yeah. and he was already playing up a year um as was Adrian, um, yeah. so they were they were playing age sixteen with people who were sort of in the under under nineteens as it would be now, or, or they're playing with the reserves or or A team. So they were they were already playing the F, the FA Youth Cup in nineteen eighty nine ninety. So I was speaking to people from that team about Ryan Giggs, and I would, I would say to them, look, so Ryan was he just head head and shoulders above everybody even at that age? And one of them, Alan Tong, who is is a guy who's who didn't make it at United, played for Exeter a few times, career ended by injury. Um, now does a podcast, actually. Mm. Um, he, um, um, and he said, well, do you know, do you know the name Adrian Doherty? And I mm. said, look, because, because I'm just an absolute nerd, yeah. uh, I was, I, I mean, it, it did trigger something in my mind from 20 years earlier where I would have seen his name in probably the Rothmans football yearbook. And, yeah. you know, I would have known the names of Alan Tong and, Kieran Toll and Adrian Doherty and Lee Costa. And so I said, well, you're, yeah, I, I did know the name. What, what, what's the story there? And he said, well, Doc was as good as Ryan Giggs at 16. Incredible. And he got injured, drifted out of football, and he died at a young age. And I said, I was like, 
what? Mm. How do you mean? What? How did he die? Um, and Alan said, oh, he, he, I'm not quite sure of the details, but it was something about a canal in Holland. And I just thought, what on earth is, you know, what on earth is this? There's a, a player at Manchester United who was as talented as Ryan Giggs, who died having had their, you know, having been unable to fulfil their potential. I would have, that would have set alarm bells ringing for me and make me think, what's, what's this story that I don't know? So I Googled him when I, when I got off the um, phone to Alan and there was basically nothing on, on the internet. There was a couple of threads on, the, uh, you know, one of the Manchester United fan forums saying, who remembers Adrian Doherty? And one person would say, oh, he was amazing. Mm. Uh, he died. It was tragic. And the only other thing was um, a sort of online tribute page which had been set up by one of his coaches in, in Derry um, a guy called Matt Bradley who basically had you know just wrote again you know the same thing he was extremely talented one of the most talented players I've ever seen in sort of 50 years in football or whatever and he said uh, tragically died at the age of 26 and he had these two newspaper clippings on the site one was saying boy wonder standing by 16 year old described as the best thing since George Best mm. um, on his on the verge of his debut for Manchester United and the other one from 10 years later in June 2000 was saying you know tributes paid to the tragic soccer jam or something like that and it was and I just remember just looking at these two things and saying well what what happened in that 10 years what Mm. why do I not know this story and Mm. and what happened and I want to know more about this so I, I was ringing other people for this Ryan Giggs piece anyway but by after that I started asking them about Adrian too. So I spoke to Adrian, uh, uh, Eric Harrison, who was, of course, um, the Manchester United youth team coach at that time, and Mark Bosnich. And Mark Bosnich was saying you know, exactly the same as Alan Tong could say. Mm. Oh, oh, incredible player. I mean, it, it just obsessed me, really, trying to find out what had happened to this. It's, it's a fascinating situation because I, the, the only time I... I'm Obviously, we're, we're sort of roughly the same age. I'm perhaps a touch younger, but certainly not much younger. And, and I'm someone who's... I mean, you described yourself as a football nerd there. I was exactly the same as a kid. And and I and I'd never heard ever heard of him. And mm. I and I called up um, some of my friends who I've you know spent most of my life watching football, talking about football with. None of them had heard of him. Mm. The only time I'd ever heard of him is when I saw your book be reviewed somewhere. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. I'll get that. And I got mm. it. And then I, obviously the story became fascinating. When when I when I googled him, all I could find was a, a quite a short BBC Northern Ireland tribute to him with a short interview with his father a TV kind of thing mm-hmm. and that's it and there's a couple of clips of him playing um, for Northern Ireland schoolboys mm-hmm. and, and uh, I think Derry City or something yeah, like yeah, that yeah, that's right. and, and I guess that kind of leads me on to my next question which is uh, obviously I don't mean this in a disrespectful way but I think it is a, a pertinent question to answer in the, in, in the circumstances how much of his reputation is improved by his absence by his in fact that he didn't not he did this is not a guy who went on and played for Sheffield United and Wolves no, and no. kind of these big clubs but slightly smaller in profile this is a guy who didn't have a career at all no so how much do you think that aids the legend if you like I would say I mean if if, if he if he had had a a sort of low level career mm. as a as I think he still could have done after his injury um had had he felt up to it in terms of, I mean, he would have been nothing like the same, the same player because he, he, his knee was severely damaged. But had he wanted to have some kind of career, I'm sure he could have done. Mm. But he, I mean, had he done that, then I'm sure the legend might have not been, you know, the, it, well, maybe perceptions of, of him as a 
extraordinarily talented 17-year-old would have been tempered by what he didn't achieve in in his career. But I think, I mean, so somebody said that to me um, after the book came out. They said, did you think people are just kind of exaggerating how good he was because of um, because he died? Mm. And I said, well, absolutely not. Because, I mean, for one thing, I mean, someone like Gary Neville, Gary Neville wouldn't rave about a, a guy who... Who was? I mean, I, I thought I thought Gary Neville, Ryan Giggs, people like that. I I thought they might not even remember really him. Yeah. remember him or mm. or really um, particularly want to talk to talk about him. But the way Gary Neville spoke about him, it was so it was so extreme. There was, there was something he likened to something he did was almost messy like, and something else mm. he did was almost David Silver like. And Gary Neville isn't one for um, gushing mm. excessive praise, I don't think, and particularly about probably about players who didn't make it. You only need to look, go back and see what people said about him at the time, which included Alex Ferguson saying, oh, he's got, you know, he's got so much talent. He's, he, we think he's going to make it here, which is not something you would expect Alex Ferguson as a, to say about a 16-year-old. I think, having spoken to so many people, I think the feeling is that had he made his debut, he would have absolutely relished it and would have, not frozen on that stage, he would have he would have he would have made a big impact. We could then get on to a question of would he have had a Ryan Giggs like career? Mm. I don't think he would have done mm. it at all. I don't think he uh I think the thing that really fascinated me more than his talent was his personality, which was so different to the typical football. I yeah. don't I don't think he was ever going to have a long Ryan Giggs type um career at the highest level I think he, I think he would have say all had been well and he hadn't got injured and done his cruise ship when he did I think he would have made his debut the next week he would probably have torn it up for the Manchester United first team for a few weeks he would probably then have done something daft off the pitch and then got in trouble with Alex Ferguson got got dropped forced his way back in again and probably had <laughs> probably had you know a year or two of being amazing and then for reasons that which we, which we can probably go into about yeah. his personality, I think I, I I don't think he would have stuck around. I do want to talk about his character. Yeah, yeah. We will definitely come on to that. But give give people a quick um, sort of synopsis about what happened um, that curtailed his career physically. Yeah, um, he as I said, he was he was very much pushing on the door of the or knocking on the door of the first team um, early nineteen ninety one, which was when. Um, Giggs and Darren Ferguson made their debut in a game against Everton. United at the time had a huge fixture pile-up because they were in the League Cup, the European Cup, Winners' Cup. They were struggling to finish, sort of fill the bench for the European Games. There's no doubt he would have been on the bench for some of those games. There's no doubt he was in the manager's mind for um, games against, I think, Sheffield United and Everton, which was the one where um, Giggs made his debut. And a week before that game against Everton, he injured his knee in a in an A team game and although the injury was reckoned to, to be not incredibly serious at the time, mm. it was he, he never recovered from it. It, it was there was ligament damage and it was sort of scanned eventually about you know several months later yeah if it? i remember correctly you you're quite critical of how it was approached and how he wasn't um immediately diagnosed and, and looked after in in that way presumably because he was 
an A team or reserve team player at that point, although he was a, a big prospect, and there was not a huge amount of medical staff that we're used to having in the game now, right? Yeah, it was. It was at the time. It was you know, the club had a physio, and there was a doctor who who worked away from the club that the club used as you know as their as their um as as their doctor. So it was it was yeah a fairly primitive approach compared to now, and because it wasn't a game, he hadn't been stretched off or anything like that, or hadn't been carried off. It was not reckoned to be a particularly serious injury. I would struggle to go through the specifics now because it was written about four years ago. But it was, um, if you look through the medical notes, and some of them are repeated, it it sounds like the injury wasn't regarded as serious for Mm. for the first few weeks. And and then they eventually, because it didn't heal, they, they eventually looked into it and it was found to be a damage to the cruciate ligament. And... Even at that point, you know, whereas now you would have a cruciate ligament reconstruction almost the next day, uh, or, or very quickly once the swelling had gone down. And this was this was August, and I don't think he had the surgery until he'd had a a massive relapse basically mm. in in the December. So he was he eventually returned to training, still seemingly carrying this injury, and in his first game back, which was a B team game against. Marine or you know one of the one of the local teams, um, he he just sort of broke down straight away, and this you know this time it was immediately re- recognised as being an extremely serious injury, and the, the, the family look back on that and just think, well, what was going on, and mm. um, why why wasn't that diagnosed quicker? Why wasn't it? Um, well, they've entrusted him to their care because he's a kid from across the Irish Sea. Mm. They're not they're not with him. And it's probably important to make that clear because, I mean, things have changed perhaps quite a lot now. But back then, the kids would come across. I mean, George Best famously did it and got homesick and wanted to go yeah, home. Yeah. They, they live in digs. They're kind of expected to to fit in and, 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 and really become almost men grown mm. at a young age. And because he was such a sensitive character, they probably were concerned, not just because he was injured, but because he was out there without anyone to support him. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a, a big issue um, because I think, even before his injury, he had, he didn't really like the sort of professional football club environment. Mm. Um, he went over. He went over as a sixteen-year-old, as I said, and he'd only, he'd only just turned sixteen. So he's from a, a small town um, mm. on the Irish border, moving to a big city, age sixteen, um, Catholic lad, wet behind the ears in some ways. There's some details about how just how wet behind the ears he was mm. in, in the book, and. He basically um, he found the whole environment around the training ground. He found it sort of very strict on one hand in terms of the training and all the jobs that they had to do, and on the other hand, he found it you know completely chaotic in terms of some of the sort of prank culture and yeah. uh, you know stuff that went on in. It's a very alpha male culture as well. Yeah, isn't it? it was, and and you know, it's I mean football clubs. Probably less so now, but in that era, you get a lot of people talking about about um, sort of initiations and and you know apprentices being bullied and all this kind of thing. And some of the apprentices or the lads that were in that age group that I spoke to said it was just horrific. What mm. you know, what what the older lads would would do to us. And and I suppose Paul Scholes, who said oh, it was unspeakable, some mm. of, some of what what. Um, what went on? And I said, well, what do you mean by unspeakable? And he said, well, you know, 
literally I can't speak about it. Mm. it. Um, but you know, you could never get away with that now. And that whole culture around it has, has changed now in that you're, you know, I mean, players aren't even sort of allowed to pump up balls or clean boots yeah. now. So it's kind, of, it's kind of gone the other way. But at that time, there was this sort of rite of passage type thing where once the first year apprentices had become second year apprentices or they'd become first year professionals, they would generally, and not just at Manchester United, but I'm sure at most clubs, they would generally sort of make the, the first year apprentices life a misery. And, mm. you know, if, if the the reserve team dressing room wasn't cleaned out properly or the, the somebody's boots weren't dirty or weren't weren't clean or the balls weren't pumped up properly you know they'd, they'd be punished and mm. punishments would be anything from you know getting locked in the um <laughs> getting locked in the sauna um mm. for for however long or getting put in a washing machine which you know that sounds god oh, no, it's not a washing machine a tumble dryer yeah, there's a yeah. slight difference yeah, um, yeah. but not, neither particularly pleasant no. or or getting you know just being held held as balls got pelted at you from a, from across a there's talk a, a of boot polish and, and kids being locked in sports bags and all exactly, sorts exactly yeah. exactly so mm. it, it's all that kind of thing he had found the whole, the whole football club environment a real culture shock because he thought he was going along there to to play football and it was going to be fun and he was going he was and his parents were assured by the decision makers at the club that he would be well looked after as well I mean you make that clear in the book as well yeah and they just didn't have a clue what was going on or they were turning a blind eye to it no I, I think the club generally didn't know what right. was going on. I think, mm. you know, a lot is talked about, about how Alex Ferguson was on top of everything and, and had eyes everywhere. And I think, well, he did in certain ways, but I think you know, from, from everything that a lot of those players talk about from that age, they were, you know, it was quite riotous in the, in the, the, the apprentices dressing room until somebody said, quick, you know, the boss is coming, or Eric Harrison's coming, or, right. or, or you know, Nobby Styles is coming. It would be, chaos at times and, and things would be going on and players would be having to run around the car park naked or, yeah. or in, in the cold or whatever so on one hand yeah Alex Ferguson had an incredible grip on a lot of what was going on but you know he, he couldn't have a grip on everything and and you know things like the drinking culture which it was said that you know he, he I mean it's History says that he booted out Norman Whiteside and and Paul McGrath in the mm. summer of 1989, and the drinking culture sort of stopped overnight. Well, you know, it, it didn't. I think Roy, Roy Keane talks about how the drinking culture was still there when he when he arrived mm. um, four years later. But but I think a lot of the young players were were dragged into a drinking culture at the club that that existed, and sometimes they would be punished heavily for for going out and for you know appear you know turning up to training hungover or whatever, but it, it's, it was, it would be impossible for a, a manager, even Alex Ferguson to, mm. to have a real grip. To be omnipotent, omniscient, yeah. Yeah, because, mm. because, I mean, he was effectively managing probably, I mean, look, the numbers aren't the same as now, but, mm. but the, but his staff would have been so much smaller then than it was in later years. So you talk about the the fact that it's changed now, and obviously you're much closer to football clubs than I am. But I, I, I think it's I, my opinion is that it has changed as far as the working conditions and 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 the manner of employment across the board in the UK over the years has changed as you'd expect because mm-hmm. generationally things do change. 
But I still do think that it's a very alpha male environment. You, I mean, you, you spend an hour or two in a training ground or at a football club among players and staff. It's still very alpha male, very kind of dominantly mm. like that. Not, I'm not going to say aggressive, but quite... Um, you have to really puff your chest out and be confident to, to achieve there, clearly. Now, Adrian wasn't that type of character based on, on yeah, your yeah. book. And clearly he had a lot of bad luck around the injury to his knee and how it was looked after. But I wonder if you think that it would have been possible for a kid of that character to succeed at a football club at that level anyway, just regardless of ability, and whether it would be a place where a kid of that character could flourish now as well. Well, he was flourishing on the pitch. Mm. Um, but there's a difference, isn't so, there, when you go through to become a senior pro yeah, and have yeah. a, a strong career? I and mean, you've already said yourself that you yeah. didn't think he would have a, a career like Ryan Giggs did. But, but, that's, but that's partly because of his, his personality and because he sort of regarded football as, a, you know, something he was really good at. I mean, it, yeah. it, when, when he was 14, 15, he was obsessed with being the best footballer he, he could be. But by the time he, he moved over to Manchester and he was, he was playing... You know, he was training day in, day out. He wasn't really enjoying it massively, mm. partly, I'm sure, because of the dressing room environment, partly because the training was you know, very strict. It wasn't It wasn't mm. kind of... It wasn't as fun. Express yourself, you yeah. know, th- this is going to be fun. Partly because of the jobs, you know, that they all had to do. A bit of homesickness as well, probably. And homesickness and, yeah. and not not enjoying it at, at, the, at the dig. So I think from various points of view... Um, he he found it a pretty um, bleak existence at times in in terms of the the you know, the challenges of being a, a professional footballer and then going back to the digs and, and living with these lads who you know some of whom he got on with some of them mm. he, he didn't and there just being no real escape from football twenty four seven and a lot of the other lads being sort of a lot more serious on one hand but a lot less fun in another you know it, it, you talk about him locking himself in his own room just playing yeah, his yeah. guitar for his, playing own. his guitar yeah, yeah, yeah. and and you know the, the guitar thing the, the the musical side is is the thing that probably made me think god this 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 really is an amazing story because mm. he was he was um although he was he was he was on the verge of manchester united's first team age 16 17 and he was going out um in the evenings into manchester with a guitar, just playing in playing in bars and you know, busking as well, bus, and yeah. busking, and, and he would he, on Saturday afternoons they had sort of complimentary tickets at at, at, at Old Trafford. The, you know the, the youth team players they had the complimentary tickets, and he would wait outside the the ground and and give his tickets away to people, and he'd go into town go and go busking instead. Now, admittedly, around that time Manchester United probably weren't really worth watching, mm. but the mm. um, but. Um, he 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 would literally go busking outside the Arndale Centre in, in mm. the in in Manchester on a Saturday afternoon, not particularly to get you know a little bit of extra pocket money on top of his twenty nine pound fifty YTS, but just because that it was an escape and it was he didn't want to be sitting in Old Trafford watching watching the first team among these lads who were sort of thinking about football constantly. Mm. He wanted to he wanted to play music, so he'd be sort of murdering Bob Dylan um, yeah. songs and, and singing out loud and he didn't have the greatest singing voice um, although he did take lessons and got better um, mm. but he would, but he loved playing the guitar and he would um, wrote his own songs wrote his own poems mm. and just became utterly 
obsessed with with music and poetry and philosophy and was just reading about all of that you know not not just sort of in a kind of very introductory level you know reading something about you know bluffer's guide to to freud or whatever it was it was he was going very very deep into mm. very very deep subjects sort of studying theology and things like that and and transcendentalism and meditation and and the way he sort of committed to that kind of thing that sort of learning mm. away from the, the pitch and it was all self-taught and the music which was all self-taught i think probably tells you that he was became more interested in that kind of kind of thing than mm. the football you know, I, f- I feel when I spend time interviewing players, both pr- current players and, and sort of ex-pros, I, I, I always find them interesting. I always find their kind of their their, their processes and their and their life interesting and w- what they've achieved and how they've achieved it. But it, I, I'm always struck by the idea that, at a pretty particularly at a young age, they have to take quite a lot of boring decisions. They have to kind of yeah, unless yeah. they're exceptionally good, and even then, I would argue now that you probably can't, even if you're brilliantly talented. They're expected to make adult decisions as quite young people, and they kind of have to always take make the boring choice because mm. to, to be single-minded enough to have a career, you kind of have to do that. And Adrian clearly, whether he knew it or not, wasn't capable of doing that, despite the fact yeah, that he yeah. had injury yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I mean, look. I, I think probably staying in his room certain nights playing the guitar was mm. a boring choice compared to going out. It's better for him than know, going out on the, the on the on the razz, But yeah. but. Um, no, I mean, I, I, as a as a complete contrast, some people might say the ultimate contrast. I've just done a book with James Milner, who mm. talks a lot about those sacrifices that you, you just he just decided at age sixteen, right? Well, I'm I'm not going to drink. I'm I'm going to mm. I'm going to um, pursue my football ambitions. Yeah, and you know, I'm not bothered about that. I'll, I'll forget about that. Constantly making those decisions where you absolutely put football at the forefront of everything. It's, you know, mm-hmm. Sometimes at the expense of family, booking himself into a hotel before home games, even when they don't have to, just because he needs to, he wants to, he wants his own routine. Mm. Now, Adrian would be the, probably the polar opposite yeah. uh, of that in that he was a spontaneous, disorganised, laid back, and maybe his sort of unique outlook on life would have served him well in terms of, in terms of handling the the pressures that came of of being an overnight star if if, if that had happened but it's um yeah i i think he he would have been somebody who would have had an amazing impact in probably the short term might have played 10 20 50 100 200 games for united or maybe elsewhere but he um but because of the injury we we will we will never know, we will never know. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them, and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. I don't know if this was your, your intention uh, in, in the book. When I, when I read it, I came away from it thinking that football clubs should have a responsibility to cater for different personality types. Mm. And I'm not talking about people who are driven or ambitious or not. I mean, you know, you can work with people who are hugely ambitious and hugely hardworking, but they have very different personality types. And your book, like I said, I don't know if it was your intention, but your book, your book made me feel that certainly back then, only one type of individual could become a professional footballer at the top level. And I wonder what you think about that and whether you think that's changed. I think you had to have a a real kind of hardness and resilience to get yeah. through the apprenticeship, never mind. Yeah. Uh, particularly, uh, but do you think they should they should cater for other personality types? Well, Make more of an effort? It, it's, an, it's an interesting one because if, if you talk about that, that so I've, I've talked about a little bit about the sort of initiation culture and the, and the sort of difficult things that that were that went on in the dressing room and homesickness and a lot of people would would they would respond to that by saying well look, if you if you if you if you're getting homesick how can you expect to be strong enough to to perform in front of mm. huge crowds and cope with the highs and lows of mm. a football you know if you can't cope with being humiliated in front of your teammates in the dressing room or um you know how can you be you know how can you be expected to to, to be tough enough to, to be a footballer. And I, I do get that argument, but I think people kind of slightly miss the point because when a lot of those stories about those initiations and things like that are told and that prank culture, which a lot of the players that I've spoken to from that era just found unbearable, humiliating, upsetting. Mm. And it's not just United. I really, you know, I've heard worse at, yeah. at, at other clubs. But... Those stories are always told by people like David Beckham, Barry, mm. Gary Neville, Robbie Savage, talk about them in their autobiographies and, their, and they always come to the conclusion that, well, looking back now, 
it was it was horrible, but it made me tougher. It made me stronger. It made yeah. Me, now, it alone doesn't break people, but mm. but but if that kind of thing, if that environment that that they were in at the time caused other incredibly talented players to struggle to fulfil their potential, or, or made it hard for them to feel settled in a football club environment, and if it made them feel, um, God. I can't stand going into training every day. Mm. Then that shouldn't really be looked back as some on a, something, uh, some great kind of rites of passage thing. That that was a case of well, you you know, you sink or swim with mm. where you got this. This will sort out the men from the boys. I know of I know of other players, and look, look Adrian Adrian isn't around tragically to be able to answer these questions. So I, I don't know how he found that. What whether it was a a small factor in in him not enjoying life as an apprentice at United or a, or a big factor. But I know from other people who, who were with him at, this, at that time felt that that just made the whole thing a misery. Yeah, you could say, well, you clearly weren't cut out, cut out to be a footballer then, but that, that's not a test of football ability. That's, 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 Something that's, different, a, that, yeah. that's a test of, you know, whether you're willing to be humiliated in front of your teammates at the, at the age of 16 and, a lot of people wouldn't be. I would expect a lot of current footballers would would struggle with that. And mm. I think it, you know that kind of thing has rightly been sort of eradicated from the game. Presumably, when you were writing this book, you felt like you you really got to know Adrian as yeah. much, much as you could. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if it was a um, at times, particularly in light of what happened to him, it's quite a difficult book to write because. It, you know, it's, it's sad of course when anyone dies but a young person of such talent is it always feels instinctively like such a tragedy more than it would anyway so I wonder if you felt that upon writing the book there were times when it was particularly difficult to do so I found it um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was quite an emotionally draining at, at, yeah. at times because I'd be you know I mean one of the things with it is is that I sort of started off with nothing um, with the book it's not like doing a biography of somebody who either is alive or mm. or there's a lot written about it. It's a great body it, of work it, kind it, of thing, the, yeah. the, the way you could kind of go consulting art, archive archive footage, archive material, etc. So I was basically sort of digging through every area of his life and, and only four years of that were professional, were, mm. were, were in the professional football environment. So there were 16 years before that and what was it seven years after that so it was um a lot of the conversations i had were with his friends and with his family and mm -hmm. so they were telling me details about him which um which you know with the sort of level of intimacy that you wouldn't normally get when talking about a footballer and they talk about you know he'd be so he ended up after football he ended up sort of working in a chocolate factory in mm. in in preston which um sort of living in a kind of bedsit in, in complete obscurity. This is this is like a month after leaving Manchester United and, mm. and was just sort of playing the, you know, working working a working factory and playing the guitar in these sort of acoustic clubs and um reveling in the anonymity, never telling anybody that, mm. that he was he was a Manchester United footballer. Then he went to Galway and was there for for uh, What's a waiter didn't he there? Was it a waiter or barman? Yeah, or yeah. Well, he, he worked in a hotel. He worked. Yeah. He, he had various jobs, but just a succession of um, sort of low-paid jobs, really, just mm. to sort of keep a roof above his uh, above his head. And you know, pe people will be telling me about you know he was just living in this 
sort of you know, little squalid little flat somewhere that it was quite damp and cold and the, good, the heating didn't work. And you just think, God, that's this is a kid who was who was had everything. And and mm. you know, Ryan Giggs, who's his teammate, would be playing in the Champions League and would be mm. all over the front pages, all over the back pages, and people like David Beckham, who were um, yeah a couple of years below, but but probably didn't have the same profile as he did at age 17, um, were superstars suddenly. And he was you know, this kid who'd been so talented because of because of an injury and various other things. He, he, he was living in complete obscurity. I think the obscurity suited him in some ways. But the juxtaposition is very stark, isn't it? The juxtaposition it? is totally stark. And yeah. it was striking to me that he never seemed to talk about football with mm. with with a lot of his friends. Um, you know, there were people who read the book and got in touch with me saying, "I knew that guy." All right. I never knew he was a footballer. Football you know, right. I, I used to drink with him most weeks in this bar in Galway. I never knew he played football. I knew him for four years. Now that is not normal, is it? No. There's a story about him in his final year at United. His brother, who was who was studying in Manchester. Met up with a with a with a friend of Adrian's, and Adrian's friend was convinced that he was a rat catcher. You know, worked worked for the you know <laughs> pest control, and that that's just what Adrian had said. Just, right, you know, the kind of sort of joke he would say. He didn't want to be now, even when he was absolutely um, tearing up for the Man United youth teams and a team. He didn't want to be defined team. by it. He didn't football. want to be defined. He wanted yeah. to. He never wanted to talk about football when he was out. Right. He never wanted to. You know, if people, you know, his mates would come over and say, "Oh, what, what, what's what's Brian Robson like?" Oh, nice guy. Get get me a pair of boots. But but he 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 never and be, be that. Yeah, he never regale them with these stories about different characters or about. He would never talk excitedly or fondly about matches he would played or anything like that. And that's that that's one of the things that really came across when I was speaking to hours with some of his friends and that, and they were talking about about what what he was like and how he found, I would say, well, how, what did he say about life at Manchester United? He said, well, he barely talked Nothing. about it. And, and you can probably read your, you know, <laughs> jump to your own conclusions about that. But one of his mates gave me a, a letter, which he'd, which he'd sent uh, in his first few weeks at United. And he was saying, oh, it's, it's, this isn't, this isn't great. This is, this is, um, right. this is, uh, it's tough. The training's, the training's really hard. The, you know, it's it's you know some of the some of the ideas they have are really stupid, and you know we're having to work all the hours. And then one of his other mates said, "Look, one of the things he really struggled with was the sort of um, regimented, uniform nature of things, where you'd have to wear a certain, you know, you'd have to be you, you wear a blazer and tie yeah. for turning up for, for for matches, and you'd have you'd be expected to have your your regulation kit bag and stuff, and he'd turn up with his odd shoes or he'd turn out with his kit in a plastic bag and, yeah. and hair all over the place and he was, he was that kind of guy and probably the way I would have been if I'd been a football yeah. but um, <laughs> it was um, and he, he he struggled with that side of things and he was kind of constantly getting told off for that kind of things mm. because he just wasn't he didn't really see the point of you know what, what, why should I get my hair cut a certain way mm. and at one point he sort of grew his hair almost like Kind of like a kind of not like a Mark Hughes style perm, but uh, but like a Bob, a Bob Dylan, Dylan type, thing, a Bob yeah, Dylan yeah. type type perm. Um, 
and apparently that was uh, that that didn't go down terribly well. Is is him turning up for preseason with with this sort of um, shaggy haircut, and um, and so he you know, said, so I'll, "I'll just kind of go for a crew cut instead." Then, so he, he was he was the, the idea. I mean, one of the one of his teammates from then just said, "Oh, the I, Ferguson always liked your kind of short back and sides footballer who would be who would be you know low maintenance would always look." You know, look the part as mm. when they turned up. Look, obviously, Ferguson wanted a lot more than that, but that was a sort of one of the one of the basic requirements. And so, Adrian turning up for you know the League Cup final with shirt hanging out, hair down to his shoulders, and and you know, I think I think Ferguson, it wouldn't have been a good fit, mm. and yet Ferguson absolutely sort of indulged him as a as a talent. Because yeah. he thought he was such an extreme talent, and made, probably made allowances for him in the early days because because he thought, well, that this this kid can't is, afford he, not to. Yeah, he he needs to be handled differently. Mm. And then once the injury came, I think he, you know he ceased to, he ceased to get that kind of same level of indulgence. And I think Adrian's family would feel that he was sort of treated as somebody who was expendable and wasn't important. Finally, Ollie, I wonder why this story is so compelling uh, compelling enough obviously for you to write mm. it and for me to be fascinated by it when I read it and I've not ever really forgotten it even though I read it a few years ago and, and clearly lots of other people have felt the same what, what is it about the story other than the fact that it's exceptionally written of course <laughs> what, what is it about the story you think that's really struck with people how does it in what way does it speak to them do you think I think the story of unfulfilled talent is um, think that's a very British it, thing is uh, I don't know because we love it, an underdog, uh, right? Yeah, and, and, or is that too and, simplistic? And, and I think I think he was an underdog in in various ways. I mean, mm. c- coming coming from Strabana, I don't know whether another professional footballer had made it from Strabane mm. at, at that stage. It, it's a it's a lovely little town, but it's it's you know um, it's been it's very hard hit in the troubles. It's been you know it's not somewhere that's had great investment in it. Mm. So he's from this. Irish backwater, if, if if I can say backwater, I think people in Strabane would probably smile at the phrase backwater. Mm. I hope they would. Sorry, um, <laughs> and it would be um, and extreme talent, and he was brought up in the troubles, and there are these sort of amazing stories about him, kind of um, you know fraternising with the with the local with the local soldiers, and mm. hey, Adrian, you can't do that, mm. that type of thing, um, and. Yeah, he was, and and then from there into Manchester, which was which was, you know, a very exciting era, not just, or you know, a very kind of nostalgic era, not just at Manchester United because things were changing so fast, but in Manchester with the music scene, etc. And he he was he was probably into different music scenes to everybody else, but he was he was there at a, a very exciting time, and I think the idea of a, a kid who is so talented at football yet doesn't really love it in the same way that that a lot of his teammates do and has a completely different personality and is more of a kind of bohemian personality and mm. is and is happier um you know there's a quote from Ferguson where where he said you know the, the boy with the most amazing football skill who is happiest with his guitar and his books mm. now that <laughs> I think if you were if you were writing if you were making up a story about about you know if you 
writing a you know a fictional story about about a footballer who um maybe didn't quite fit in or you know you would say okay well he had an extreme talent mm. what else would you have you'd probably have him at Manchester United mm. you'd probably say he was from Ireland because mm. there's a whole George Best thing going Bestie, in. Yeah. you'd say he was a winger you'd say that in terms of you know if you, if you tried to create a, a different personality for him you'd say he was into you'd be a you know devout Catholic and mm. and he'd be um, into music and and poetry I think if you were making a story up you couldn't make a better. You, you were trying to make a, a character and plant them into sort of all that, most of that sort of class of '92 era that was different to everybody else. You couldn't create a better personality or character than Adrian Ducty really was, and his story is one of sort of sliding doors in some ways. And and the you know there's the thing with with Ryan Giggs where one of them went on to absolute greatness and the other one went to, you know, he, he um, never played for Manchester United in the end because of the injury and just played a handful of games for Derry City and then just gave up on football and went, settled for a life of obscurity, playing his music and writing his poems. And I just find that whole narrative, um, which, you know, narrative makes it sound like it's a fictional story. It's not. This is the thing. It's, it's a true story of, of a guy who, was just as talented as anybody as a footballer, but didn't have the luck and was probably in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the wrong time. And I just found it, look, I, I'm not saying my book is amazing, but I do think it's the most amazing story. And that's why I wanted to write the book of, of all the footballers I've ever written about and interviewed and so on. I don't think anybody, any footballer's personality has, has grabbed me and any footballer's story has grabbed me in the same way that Adrian Doherty's has. So if you were, if you were going to write a, a biography of Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or you know, Harry Kane or Wayne Rooney, you know, Wayne Rooney's probably a more multi-layered, interesting personality than the other three that I mentioned. But I think you'd be sort of repeating yourself a lot of the time in terms of what kind of personality they were. Whereas Adrian just seemed to be this absolutely multi-layered, endlessly interesting personality who had this most fascinating story right right to the tragic end this was a stakhanov production small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. 
Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.